for listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, the Quiz Show Show! Life, the Universe, and Everything Else is a program promoting secular humanism and scientific skepticism produced by the Winnipeg Skeptics. You can email your questions, comments, or criticisms to us at podcast at winnipegskeptics.com. Show notes, references, and relevant links can be found at podcast.wordpress.com or at winnipegskeptics.com slash blog. I'm your host, Ashlyn Noble, and today on the show we have Laura Creek Newman. Hi there. Lauren Bailey. Hello. And Jem Newman. Hello. And today we're going to regale you with facts and factoids, and you should maybe get a pen and paper if you want to play along at home, because we have four very different quizzes, and that's going to be almost our entire show. But first, we're going to start out with more dubious advice. Yay! It looks like Ashlyn might actually get her uh, wish to be the skeptical agony aunt. (laughs) I'm going to have to come up with a better name, though. Alright, so we received a question from our fan Caroline. She says, Hello, fellow skeptics. I enjoyed your Q&A bit at the top of the most recent episode, and I have a skeptic-related question I'd like to hear your thoughts on. No problem! I'm a skeptic and a vegan. I went veg before I knew much about GMOs or the organic industry. I just didn't want to consume animal products, and the question of pesticides or frankenfoods didn't enter into it at all. I say this because I know a lot of people who went vegan as a result of GMO fear-mongering. But since then, I've become more informed on the science and am proudly pro-GMO. However, the majority of specialty vegan products are a part of the non-GMO and organic product line. I buy normal stuff whenever I can, but I pretty regularly end up putting my dollars into a market that I think is fear-mongering and unscientific. I've heard of people that boycott organic, but those people don't have already restricted diets. What is your advice? Cheers, Caroline. We were all really happy to hear your question. I think it's a really good question, a really interesting question, and one that we all have a variety of opinions on. So, And we may end up expanding this into a... A full show topic, eventually. (laughs) So, I happen to have a partner who's vegan. Hi! (laughs) (laughs) And it's true that the vast majority of fancy vegan products also have the taglines GMO-free and gluten-free a lot of the time for no reason. Yeah, I enjoy my tofu (laughs) (laughs) gluten-free. GMO organic alliance. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But the good thing is, if you make up a lot of your diet with things that aren't already prepackaged and made into patties, you can buy conventional vegetables and things, which is what we do a lot of our shopping in just the regular produce aisles. I'm not a fan of the fake meats. I, I'll get like the packaged tofu, the white bricks of doom. <laughs> uh, but unless we're going to a cookout or something, I won't go and get veggie dogs or veggie burgers and I don't think I've wait I've had veggie bologna once in my life and that was enough (laughs) nope that's there are lines I will not cross and so I just don't eat that stuff I I understand that some people like it but not for me but I think the other side of the coin is that a lot more people are turning to vegetarianism and veganism uh, in the past few years and I think that's a trend that's going to continue and it's a great trend and if you're putting your money into the fancy vegan products, 
eventually there will be more of them. And with more of them, there will become more choices for the not non-GMO yeah. <laughs> right. and things like that. And so less expensive, you know, non-GMO vegan food. Yeah. So if you can and you want to avoid putting your money into the GMO scaremongering accounts and yada yada, buy as much of your produce uh, from the regular produce section as you can. And when you put your money into the fancy vegan products, just know that eventually those products getting money will cause the whole line to expand. So what do the other vegetarians on our panel think? Yeah, well, I'm like, I'm a vegetarian who also does not eat eggs and eats a very limited amount of dairy. I'm vegan adjacent. And for me, what it comes down to, I, I do like some of the meat like the, the fake meat alternatives. I have enjoyed and will continue to enjoy vegetarian pepperoni from time to time. <laughs> it is, I think, equally appropriate and consumable, and it is equally food as, uh, as you know, uh, the real pepperoni, which is to say not, not, that, not that much. But what it comes down to for me is how bad is the pseudoscience that y you're endorsing, and is there an alternative that is acceptable to you. So I think this goes beyond just like vegan products or vegetarian products and GMO. It's a more widely applicable rule. Yeah. Sure, when we go and we buy soy milk, the only brand of soy milk that I really like happens to be like GMO Free Alliance or whatever. So we buy that because for me, the how bad as a pseudoscience is, it's not... It's not doing as much harm as, say, like, homeopathy, in mm -hmm. my opinion. And uh, is there an acceptable alternative? No. And I don't feel like I'm contributing to a massive problem. Whereas, in, in some cases, I will not uh, patronize an establishment if, uh, for example, we, have, we had for a long time in Winnipeg Organza, which was an entirely organic market. Mm -hmm. And there were products there that I wanted to get, but I refused to shop there because the entire establishment and the machinery around it kind of is a walking endorsement of, is an endorsement of this ideology. And there's a, there's a restaurant that I have been kind of wanting to try that has popped up in Winnipeg, and I think it's popped up elsewhere as well, called Freshy. And I look at the menu and I'm like, there's a lot of stuff on here that I would like to, to try to eat. It sounds delicious. But it's all like, cleanse your body of toxins with our oh, new no. sandwich. Oh no, I didn't <laughs> well, know that. They're also selling just juice cleanses now. Yeah. Oh. And so, again... I can get sandwiches elsewhere. I'll, I'll just go somewhere else. Yeah. It's a hard thing. I, I definitely fall in the same line as Jam. I mean, we do our grocery shopping together, so we eat the same kinds of foods. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Amazing. But uh, I also like some of the veggie products. I try to just keep those to a minimum. And I figure in terms of those types of products, you're really not... It, it's either that or nothing in a lot of cases. Right. And I love hot dogs, for example. <laughs> so I'm not giving up my hot dogs, so I'm going to buy the organic whatever ones. I still remember Skepticon. <gasps> hot dogs! <laughs> They're the best. They're the best. You're so excited. That and I still remember the only vendor twist. had. Oh. <laughs> mm. Anyway. They're so good. Anyway. <laughs> um... Yeah, so so I'll I'll keep buying those products, but I think the bigger impact really comes with 
things like the produce and other types of even things like breakfast cereals like you can find a lot of like organic yada yada breakfast cereals and you're suddenly paying eight dollars for a tiny box of cereal whereas the same fruit loop equivalent in the you know conventional version would be what four dollars or something like that all cereal is expensive all cereal is expensive and expensive and in those types of foods there is an equivalent that you can easily purchase and the price difference is significant. Whereas for the veggie vegan products like the the patties and the burgers and stuff like that, there isn't really an equivalent out there right mm-hmm. now. And and same thing with like I said, with the produce. That's the biggest thing. When you look at two heads of cauliflower, one's five dollars and one's yeah. ten dollars. Okay, the organic one is ten dollars. That is way more of a markup. You're pouring way more money into that. So as long as you're buying conventional other products which are just as healthy I might add then I think you're doing as much as you can do right now and again just kind of limiting your consumption to the amount that you feel is appropriate and doable in your life yeah because if you don't buy the vegan products altogether even though there's only the non-gmo option then you're telling the market that you don't want more absolutely absolutely I, I actually find the breakfast cereal example really funny because the only thing I buy that's like non-GMO alliance is like a fancy chia coconut cereal because there's no <laughs> other option like it's so good and it's it's non-GMO but I don't care it's delicious man if like if Post's Cranberry Almond Crunch ever goes GMO alliance I'm gonna be in some I'm gonna be in some trouble because I'm not gonna stop buying that I think it's important to not be dogmatic about a lot of things too. Your $4 isn't going to make that big a difference. No, no, exactly. I mean, there's other ways that you can have your voice That's the message of hope. (laughs) One person can't make a difference. Do we really want to go back to there just being the expired white lumps of medium hardness tofu that I had when I first became vegetarian? Yeah, no. That was it. That was it. There was... In the specialty foods, little tucked away in the the sin corner. And the, like there is an argument to be made that I think has been kind of talked around a little bit about you know everybody should probably be eating fewer prepackaged, pre-processed yep. foods. But it's not an argument that I'm going to make. Yeah, I don't <laughs> care. I'd say grow your own, but we live in Winnipeg. Well, exactly. We I, I, I am growing my own, but <laughs> <laughs> you can you can only do so much. And quite frankly, you have to look at your own life as well and make choices within that Mm -hmm. you know we have a three-year-old at home and she's a very picky eater and she needs meals earlier than a lot of other people do so I need a lot of meals that need to happen within 30 minutes like the time that I walk in the door 30 minutes later then that meal needs to be on the table and cooking all of my own beans from scratch and putting together some lovely casseroles and stews and stuff doesn't always work like ideally yes but it doesn't. So. I live with two adult omnivores, and uh, <laughs> I can't be arsed to make two elaborate meals no. every day. No. Oh, gosh, no. All right. So on to the quiz show show portion Ooh. of the day. <laughs> uh, we are just going to jump right in, and we're going to start off with Laura's quiz. Okay. And I'll try and keep a running tally throughout the, the games to see who wins it all in the end. All right. So my quiz is... All about pregnancy and labor myths because I'm 30 weeks pregnant and I think about it a lot. (laughs) (laughs) And considering that this is my my second go at this far along in pregnancy, so I, I feel like I've been through a few of these things. But, and I know that I like 
I've done a lot of reading on this topic, but I don't know how much everybody else has, or how many myths as well. So I'll be very interested to see who gets what right, and it'll also tell how well Jem's been listening to me. Some father stakes are high. I'm being graded. Okay, so it's going to be a little bit of a mixed bag of types of questions, and I'm going to jump around from topic to topic a little bit, but hopefully it will be fun. Okay. Okay, so the first question. This is a spot the fiction question. Historical ways to induce labor include having four women shake you until contractions start. So there's one woman for each limb. Have your husband gather snakes in a basket and put it in the birthing room. It sounds safe. And well, the last you, you, option... Hercules needs something to strangle when he comes out of the womb. <laughs> and the last option is insert ground corn or honey-soaked hemp into your vagina. Spot the fiction. Who's starting? Jim. <laughs> Subtle. I'm... I'm sorry. Obviously, I was supposed to be listening when Laura was regaling me with these tales, but apparently I... Uh, uh, what was the first one again? Sh- being drawn and quartered by women? No! That's a little, I think that's a little too far. Just having okay. four women shake you until contractions start. Oh, God. And then you're drawn and quartered. Yeah. Oh, God. So, so that one strikes me as, I guess, as believable as anything... The, the snakes one, uh, number two, seems like, I don't know, that seems like a dangerous thing to do, just between you and me. That's the only dangerous there one are, on this there list. There are lots of... <laughs> Never shake a baby. <laughs> Even in utero. <laughs> uh, but, you know, there are lots of harmless snakes. I just, I don't see why that one would even be thought to induce labor, I guess there's some, like, phallic significance to the snakes, maybe, but uh, I'm going to go with number two as the fiction. Okay. We'll go around this way. Okay. So I have no idea about the shaking one. I I guess... you got to shake the baby out, actually. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The snake thing, like, I feel like snakes have the whole fertility symbol thing going on for them, so I, I think maybe that's true. It's also, yeah, just super bizarre. And, like, putting things in your vagina is the cure for everything in the ancient world. Yeah. So Pretty I much. totally think that one's true. So which one's the Yes, putting, the putting false things one. in putting things in your vagina is a time tested method to cure everything, including having a child in you. Um <laughs> Wait. So <laughs> Although time tested method to cure not having a child in you. Yeah, yeah. Uh so I'm gonna go with the shaking one as the fiction. Okay, yeah. and Lauren. I'm also going going with the shake one. The shaking is the fiction. Yeah, it's too You're not going to shake the sillies out. Okay. <laughs> okay, so I never said that any of these actually worked, right? Um, <laughs> I'm just making that clear. Yeah. Jem actually spotted the fiction. Oh. So the shaking is a, a method that was used, as well as the inserting of the grains in the vagina. The, the getting a basket of a nice, snakes is a myth that nice does porridge. relate to childbirth, but yeah. it is not supposed to induce labor. I've heard something It is, I believe, from China, and it is supposed to... A fertility to, ritual? And no, it's, you do actually have that basket of snakes in the birthing chamber, but they're to ward off evil spirits once the baby is born. Okay. That but it's not actually sense. supposed to do anything. So well done, Jim. Okay. All right. <laughs> okay. Off to a good start. Question number two. Which of the following is not a common side effect of pregnancy? 
a bleeding nose, a bleeding ulcer, or bleeding gums. Oh, man. And we're going to start with Lauren. Bleeding nose. Okay. Yeah, I'm also going to go with nose. Although I've never heard of the bleeding gums thing. Wow. Yeah. Oh, ble- bleeding gums is definitely true. Bleeding ulcer makes sense. Bleeding... Bleed I don't from... know. Bleeding no, like Bleeding from everywhere just kind of makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm going to stay safe, go with the group, and say bleeding nose, because I haven't noticed you having any ble- bleeding noses. Have you noticed you're having an ulcer? <laughs> ah, I don't know. Everything causes ulcers. And by everything, I mean... Bacteria? Bacteria. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm kind of going back on my answer, like, hmm, the ulcers were Are a lot of bacteria it, or... I don't think I'm allowed to. It's already passed, right? Should I okay. change it? Okay. It's locked in. It's All locked right. in. Okay. Well, I, I swept you guys, but yeah. you would have gotten yeah. it changed it to the <laughs> ulcer. Yeah. Yeah. Bleeding noses and bleeding gums do happen during pregnancy. That makes sense. Bleeding ulcers... Can but shouldn't. Okay. <laughs> well, I think that's true, generally speaking. But they can nose, happen, yes. but they shouldn't happen. Bleeding noses and bleeding gums happen fairly frequently, though. I thought I had an ulcer, it turned out I was just pregnant. <laughs> that is that, that, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that was the last time. <laughs> okay. No, second last. Vanishing twin syndrome is a condition first documented in 1945 and has been steadily increasing over time. What factor is contributing to the increased incidence of this complication? In utero cannibalism. Well, that's how it happens. Yes, there are multiple choices. Sorry. Because I'm going to go, can I just like make a hypothesis first? Sure, go for it. Increased availability of ultrasounds. Yeah, that was (laughs) because you know about them in advance. (laughs) That is one of the options. (laughs) Uh, So there is that one. There is the increased incident or availability of ultrasounds. The introduction of corticosteroid use in medicine, Hmm. which also happened in 1945. And increased radiation exposure since World War II with the development and testing of atomic weapons and devices. And one of these are true or one of these is false? One of these is the true answer. Right. Well, I'm going with the ultrasound one. Yeah. (laughs) So am I. Yeah, increased surveillance. Like with autism, uh, yeah. with the increased incidence of autism, it, I'm, I'm sure it is primarily a result of increased awareness of it. Yeah. Just like increased awareness of spontaneous abortions, uh, miscarriages is yeah. in... in because to, to some it, degree, a result of people knowing they're pregnant a lot earlier. Yeah. yeah, yeah. If you if you know you're pregnant at four weeks, you're going to lose more babies than when you found out you were pregnant at eighteen weeks. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Yes, you guys all got it there. Yay! I just I really liked as much as this is a very sad uh, complication. I really like the name vanishing twin syndrome. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it was something that basically didn't exist before ultrasounds came along Mm -hmm. and then as more and more people get ultrasounds and also we get them earlier and earlier not here in Manitoba but in a lot of places (laughs) they get them in the first like five to ten weeks routinely so it's really um so you notice it a lot more so it can now it can also happen um vanishing twin syndrome is also something that is applied if uh later in pregnancy if one of the twins dies but it's not that same kind of vanishing absorbing sort of deal yeah, yeah. so so yeah, that is um uh you, yeah 
<laughs> I, I was joking when I said cannibalism because I, you know, obviously it's not a one twin eating the other. But uh, now, is that primarily a result of chimerism, where where the one will reabsorb the other, or is that uh, primarily just a result of having a partial miscarriage? Uh, like in general, yeah. vanishing twin syndrome. Generally, it seems to be uh, when it happens in the first trimester, the the twin that died, the fetal tissue does get absorbed, but it's not necessarily a totally. Yeah, it's okay. it's not necessarily that. It's just that. Yeah, like it is a miscarriage of one of the twins, but the tissue is small enough and all of that that it does just generally get reabsorbed. Okay. Okay. So good job, everybody. Next question. The youngest surviving baby was born at what age range? Okay. 21 to 22 weeks, 22 to 23 weeks, or 19 to 20 weeks? 22 is where Uh, they count viability. Okay. So does anybody want to go first here? I'll say 19 to 20. I think there's probably been at least one that survived. Yeah. I I think 19 to 20 as well. I think I've heard of... At least one. I thought that this actually, that the earliest one actually happened quite recently. Well, probably. But I mean, I always push yeah. back, so. But I don't, mm, I don't remember. I'm going to say 21 to 22. Okay. And Jem gets it. <gasps> yes. Yes. Um, well, you know, there might this, be, so. <laughs> now I'm going to put a caveat here. There might be some incidences that we just haven't heard of, but from what I could find, the youngest, um, I'm going to go, I'm going to say that there's actually two babies because they were born a day apart, but the youngest surviving babies were born at 21 weeks, five days and 21 weeks, six days, respectively. Oh, okay. And they weighed less than a pound each. And oh, uh, one was born in 1987 in Ottawa and one was born in 2007 in uh, somewhere in the U.S. Oh. So there actually so, hasn't been a, a, a youngest one Recently. recently not not yeah. that i could find so yeah it uh so yeah and that's where that cutoff of the 22 weeks viability comes mm-hmm. in because that's been kind of the standard and there's been uh there's a lot of ethical discussion in medical circles about should we try and resuscitate babies at that are born earlier than that can mm-hmm. they survive is it in the best interest of the child no i know it's a very small sample set but are you aware if there were like severe complications Generally, generally there are some complications. I didn't yeah. read into it too too much, um, but the references to both of these children are uh, will be in the show notes. So if you if you want to look into it, but generally babies born before, generally babies born in the twenty three to twenty six week range have a fair number of complications. Some of which do persist, yep. including lung problems, vision problems, hearing problems. All sorts of things. And I know, like, a lot of brain development happens yeah. between, like, 20 and 30 weeks. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. Mm. Okay. And the lungs aren't ready at 22 weeks. No. No. Next question. Eating for two. Women typically need how many additional calories daily for a healthy pregnancy? Keeping in mind that the average woman requires, based on calculations, about 1,500 to 2,000 calories a day. So, 150 to 200 calories a day, 250 to 350 calories a day, or 400 to 600 uh, calories a day? I remember reading that it's equivalent to a piece of toast with peanut butter. So, I think it's the second one, up to 350 calories. Okay. Who wants to go next? Sure. I'll say the same as Ashlyn. I'm going to go the smallest one. 150 to 
250? Is that what the 150 to 200. Yeah, uh, I'm going to go with that one. Okay. Lauren and Ashlyn get it. Ooh, yeah. Damn it. Generally, it's it's about 250 to 300 calories. I fudged the range a little bit, but it falls in there. 150 to 200 is not necessarily wrong, but it's definitely not eating for two. It's not more than five to 600 <laughs> calories a yeah. day. Well, that isn't the whole point is you're not eating for two. You're eating for one and a tiny little bit. <laughs> well, you are eating for one and a tiny little bit too. And remember that your body... Uh, a pregnant body is better at absorbing calories and and using calories. It, oh, it's really? more efficient. Yeah. yeah, just like you don't actually need a whole lot more calcium when you're pregnant because your body just automatically just absorbs a lot more of it. So if hmm. typically it would absorb 30% of what's in the food you eat, now it's absorbing, say, 50. That's awesome. So, yeah, so you don't actually need... As much as you are using a ton of calories, your body just gets better at using the ones that you're already consuming. Very cool. I was yeah. going to say, like... It seems like we could come on bodies get with it. Why why are you more efficient? But then I'm like, eh, you know, in our society we right now, yeah. we, we we don't need to be any more efficient. With the number of available calories that we have, we definitely don't need efficiency here. Yeah. Okay, next question. Which foods are said to make labor easier? Dates, papaya, or mangoes? Uh, are said or actually do? Are said. <laughs> I'm going to say papaya because fruits that some people claim kind of look like female genitals are associated with female genital things. That, that's, that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> I've never heard of any of these. I don't know, but like dates are one of those like magical biblical foods that have been around forever mm, that sorry, people think yeah. do a lot of things. I'll, I'll go with dates. <laughs> um. <laughs> solid argument. <laughs> Lauren. That solid is mine. <laughs> oh, I'll go with the papaya as well. Okay. Well, Ashlyn it, takes it. Yay! Yes. This is one that popped up in, I don't know, I think Facebook or something like that recently. I didn't hear about this at all during my first pregnancy. Um, so it's a recent thing that I learned. But yes, dates are said to make labor easier. They're, as best as I could find in a PubMed search, there is one small study done where they looked at pregnant women who did consume dates and did not consume dates during the last few weeks of their pregnancy and looked at the length, length of labor and perceived pain and, and such like that. And so dates are kind of like you said, this magical fruit du jour. Oh, if you're pregnant in the last few weeks. the mechanism of that? I haven't the faintest idea. Like I said, there is one <laughs> yeah, yeah. study involving like 69 patients or something And anytime like that. you have any kind of intervention, there's you often will see a result just because people are like, well, they're doing something. It must be doing... Absolutely. And if you read the abstract for this one study, it says randomized clinical trials would be recommended. (laughs) So definitely we're not at the stage to be making recommendations. I mean, hey, if you like dates, go for it. They're good for you, but they may or may not have an impact. A website that says papaya is great for heartburn during pregnancy. (laughs) However, I see no reason to believe this website because it is a dumb bullshit website oh. yeah but, uh, you just have to ignore all of that yeah. stuff and just uh, yeah you, it's you, great yeah <laughs> okay okay pregnant women are frequently counseled to avoid having massages particularly to the lower body near the end of their pregnancies due to the risk of what harm to the fetus from the scents and essential oils that are often used in spa and massage products increase the risk of increasing the amount of muscle cramps or charlie horses in those that are prone to them, uh, 
or tr- uh, the risk of triggering preterm labor. I'm going to say triggering preterm labor. Okay. I agree. Yeah, it's definitely that one. Well, I had uh, a massage student doing a, a case study on me, trying to fix my unfixable back problem. <laughs> but she told me all about this, about how, oh, you know, if you were pregnant, I wouldn't be able to be any t- even touch the lower part of your back because it might touch the nerve that triggers labor. And I was like, well, that sounds like some bullshit. But <laughs> yeah. But yes. Yeah, it's definitely not the scent one. Because yeah. I'm like, the baby's not going to, like, smell the... Like if if it's a few inches further down. (laughs) No, for sure. So yeah, you guys all got it. I was hoping to go with like the idea of the chemicals that cause the scents and like the essential oils. Anyway, uh, yeah, yeah, I don't think it's going to transfer like laterally through your tissues just directly (laughs) and cause a chemical burn after three layers. (laughs) This is a pretty common one that you hear a lot, actually. And this goes back to the acupuncture, acupressure Mm -hmm. notion that, oh, you're overdue. Go get some acupuncture on your ankle and that'll cause labor (laughs) because reflexology is a thing. It's not. Nope, not a thing. Okay, good. So another spot the spot the fiction. The history of human placentophagy, or eating of placenta, is that it has consistently been practiced by uh, by the mother in many cultural groups outside of Europe. Its recent surge in popularity developed in the 1970s as part of the alternative spiritual movement. It has been a part of some traditional medicines, but not given to the mother. Mm, The first one would be the false one. I don't think... It's been widespread anywhere, anytime. Yeah. There's been burying the afterbirth. And, yeah, but the first one. I think the third one is definitely true. Because sympathetic magic is popular. And if you, you know, have a placenta around as the mother, you know, you probably don't need whatever sympathetic magic you're going to get out of the placenta. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I would imagine it's probably uh, used in some sort of fertility uh, rites. Number two also seems like it definitely would be a thing, you know, like that kind of woo-woo stuff that our parents' generation was caught up in really seems to be around the time. Yeah, well, okay. Really seems to be around the time uh, that caught on. I don't know. Number two might be the fiction, but I'm going to go with number one. I'm going to go with the crowd. Okay, good job. You guys all got it. It has been consumed before, but rarely by the mother. Sometimes it is prepared in a way that is then given to the child or like perhaps the infant. Um, often that's done by making a drying it and making a tea out of it when the infant is sick. In some cultures, <laughs> I thought you were going like, to say a jerky. <laughs> no, oh God, you can't no. jerky a placenta. Ugh. Uh, so, and in some cultures, it's um, for the father to drink it, as again, to ward off spirits and, and negative uh, things. Other times, it's the caregivers that will uh, consume it. Hmm. But yeah, there was a really excellent study that I found, and they could not find any consistent consumption of, uh, of placenta. It really started in the 1970s, and yeah. Good and job. it's super gross, and you should not do it. Sounds yeah, it's it's awful. I mean, just look at a placenta. Go look at a picture of a placenta. <laughs> Tell me you want to eat that thing. Like, no, not happening. There's no benefit to it. 
Blah. It doesn't make any sense to prepare it in your kitchen either. Blah. Yeah, consuming human meat, uh, especially human organ meat, yeah, seems yeah okay. You know, if you want to do it, that's your business, <laughs> I guess. No, it's unsanitary. True, uh, true or false? Symphibus pubis dysfunction, diastasis recti, and myasthenia gravis are all side effects of pregnancy. I know of they a... They can tell us what these are. I know that <laughs> two of them are. So I'm going to say yes, because pregnancy has so many side effects. <laughs> yeah, I know what the first one is, so I'm going to say true. I know what the last one is. <laughs> <laughs> and I've heard of the first one. Uh, Sure. Yeah, why not? I don't think Jim's been listening to you so much as he's going with us. <laughs> it is false. Oh! Because myasthenia gravis is not a side effect of pregnancy. I thought it was. Not a regular one that I can find. The, this is the one that I always confuse with hyperemesis gravidarum, yeah. which means, you know, extreme nausea and vomiting. Yeah. It's the gravis part of it that gets me every yeah. single time. But symphibus pubis is basically when the pubic bones stretch so much that it yep. causes incredible pain and you yep. can't walk. And diastasis recti is when the abdominal muscles stretch and sometimes can rip and can cause hernias. Yes. Uh, and I what know. is the first one? You never Myasthenia gravis. It's a neurological condition. Okay. Yeah. I would think I was confusing it. Yeah. Well, because I, I know every I, time I yeah. see it, I do that. <laughs> and the stretchy pubic uh, bone thing is, I always find really cool. One no. Of, Ow. <laughs> one of my favorite things about it, though, is that you, when you're looking at a, a skeleton, you, one of the best ways to age, to tell how old somebody was when they died, if it's a woman, is that you can look at that, um, the connection on their pelvis and see how much it's been stretched out because uh, with a monthly cycle it gets a little bit stretched out every month and then goes back together a little bit stretched out every month and so you can tell whether they've had children how old they were based just on really? that one joint it's really oh, cool that's pretty cool last question the average length of labor is 3 to 8 hours 9 to 14 hours or 16 to 21 hours if we are assuming because I know uh Subsequent labors tend to go faster, or I think I know, I believe, subsequent <laughs> labors tend to go faster than early labors, so if we are... Well. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, let's say that this is like first labors. Uh, I'm going to go with the middle one, uh, because, you know, like early labor, you know, you're not in the hospital at all, and you know, you're just going about your business, and sure. Are we talking Western or worldwide? Western, because that's where that's the info that I can find in yeah. English and such on a short time frame. <laughs> I'll go with the middle one as well. Okay. Ashlyn, with yeah. the crowd or against oh, the crowd? I feel like you only hear about it if it's super short or it's super long, so <laughs> I don't know what the average would be. Can you read me the, the lengths again? Okay, 3 to 8 hours, 9 to 14 hours, or 16 to 21 hours. Including all three stages of labor? Yeah. Eight hours is a long time. I'm going to go with the first one, I think. Okay. So like, it's not an emergency when you first feel it, but you should probably get ready to go to the hospital. Probably should have gone with the crowd. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For a first labor, it's often around 12 hours from start to finish, and but it can vary. You know, and anyone, like, 
any labor can be longer or shorter, and subsequent labors can be shorter, but they can also be longer, yeah. all of that. Yeah. And yeah, you generally only hear about it if it's like, we got to the hospital and it was born right away, or I was there for two days, or yeah. something horrible like or that. Or I woke so. up and told my husband to call 911, and then they delivered the baby in my living room, as happened to a friend of ours. Baby was fine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Perfectly healthy baby. That's that's good. That's good. So, our next topic, going from babies to cats. <laughs> <laughs> Which are like babies. Yes, they're, they're right? my, my personal fur babies. Uh, so, <laughs> my babies. quiz is all about the genetics of household cats. Yay! Yay. So, um, I made my quiz sort of Incredibly difficult. <laughs> <laughs> um... High school biology quiz format where you had to actually think up the answers and write them down. I think it's um, like pub quiz format. Yeah. 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 And so yeah. I distributed the quiz beforehand, and so there won't be any advantages to people hearing the answers first. And so they're just, our contestants are going to read off their answers when I read the question. <laughs> Thank you, Jim. Origami. All right. First question. All cats, including the big cats, have a mutation that deactivates a chemosensor in the taste buds. As a consequence, cats can't taste what flavor. Uh, sweet. Yeah, let's just go in this direction. Yeah, I also said sweet, but I said sweet. <laughs> so I couldn't remember if it was sweet or sour. I said sour. It is sweet. Ah! Yes. So cats cannot taste sweet. That's why cats are generally ambivalent towards things like berries and desserts, unless you're our cat Astra, who will eat anything. Um, <laughs> they're the only mammal study to date that cannot taste sweet things, but they do have receptors to taste other things like ATP. Uh, so ATP oh. is the hmm. molecule that provides power to cells, and cats can actually taste that, because there's really? some of it in meat left. So Yeah. yeah. Cool. And they're... Of course, obligate carnivores, and there's really no reason for them to get excited about carbs. So they except don't. if they're Astra, <laughs> <laughs> there's always that one cat that does the thing that no other cats yeah. do, right? And there's, there's actually one. two different sensors that taste sweet, and it's only one of them that are deactivated in cats. And usually, the two have to work together to taste the sweet. Um. And so, there's some theories that uh, that some cats maybe have. A little bit of ability to taste that sweetness with their one leftover sensor. So that's but, why they might be. Yeah, but a there's, little no, bit more there's no definitive answers about that yet. Hmm. Alright. Hmm. We just think she likes cupcakes. Yeah. <laughs> and bread. Just take one bite out of every fucking slice. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, that's just a cat being a jerk. Because <laughs> they are. Love them, but they're jerks. <laughs> Alright. Uh, how many chromosomes do cats have? I put 28 because I had no clue. I had no idea. I said 16. <laughs> How about 37? <laughs> wow. That's an odd number. <laughs> that was shockingly close. Cats have 38 chromosomes. Oh, damn it! And, and I can't believe you put an odd number yeah. because they're always in pairs. Yeah! Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> so. You can tell he was just throwing that question. Yeah, no, I. <laughs> so they have 19 the pairs. to be continued. Yeah. 19 pairs of chromosomes. Uh, some cats from South America, namely ones in the ocelot family, actually have 36. Uh, so there, but there's some evidence that cats with 38 chromosomes and cats with 36 can interbreed, uh, but usually the males will be sterile hmm. because they have that weird, uneven number of chromosomes. All right. Uh, what congenital problem is very common in cats with white fur, but not in albino cats? I put deafness. Deafness. Oh, uh, I put blindness. It's deafness. But... <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, Sorry, so... I put 
blindness? <laughs> is there a question mark at the end of each one? There is. <laughs> I'm just going to assume that all of Jim's questions have uptalk. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so this is because the gene that causes a dominant white coat is pleiotropic. That is, it has more than one effect. Part of the effect of this gene causes blue eyes and also causes a degeneration of structures in the inner ear. And that can affect either one or both ears. And so sometimes you'll have a cat with heterochromatic eyes. Yeah. Mm. And one eye will be blue, one eye will be another color. And the side that has the blue eye will be deaf and the other one won't be, which is interesting. But not all cats with white fur are deaf and so usually cats with non-blue eyes aren't because they have a different gene that causes their white fur and that gene is usually responsible for white spots Um, but it can be expressed so that your whole cat is basically a giant white spot (laughs) Um, and if your cat has even one hair on its whole body that is not white then it has this gene and not the one that's the dominant white one and they won't be deaf interesting I was really disappointed to find as far as I can tell, no questions about X inactivation. So I was going to bust out that uh, that particular piece of knowledge. Okay. Well, you're wrong. I could not. There is a uh, question about <laughs> somewhat related to X inactivation, but let's carry on. Cats who have the gene for polydactyly have extra what? Toes. Toes. I put digits. No, I'll that... accept it. Oh, 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 I'm sorry. No, they don't have fingers. <laughs> That's what polydactyly means, etymologically. Yes. Yeah. Yes, they, they have extra toes. And polydactyl cats were thought of as very lucky, and they were especially prized by sailors. They were thought to be better at walking on decks and catching mice with all of their extra toes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they're very common in port cities, and it was thought, it's thought that they probably originated on uh, the east coast of the U.S., um, yeah, and as a result, so there. we can date the appearance of polydactyl cats in cities along the coast as those cities made contact with Boston. Hmm. <laughs> cool. So polydactyl cool. cats appeared in the cities as ships started coming from Boston. Cool. Which is pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, it's also, it's fairly common to have, if you have the gene to have um, polydactyl uh, paws in the front paws. Um, it's pretty rare to have polydactyl back paws, and it's even more rare to have all four paws, paws be polydactyl. Hmm. That was interesting. So it is more fingers than toes. Yes. <laughs> right. uh, tortoise shell cats are almost always blank. Slow and steady, but they win the race. No. Female. I said male. I had no idea. Did you actually put slow and steady? Of course, of course he did. <laughs> <laughs> Tortoise shell cats are almost always female. So this is a fairly technical explanation. Stop me if I'm not making any sense anymore. Uh, so tortoiseshell and calico coats result from an interaction between genetic and developmental factors. I didn't realize that tortoise shell was... Oh, it's God. a coat color. Yep. Yeah, well... Okay. Yeah. I'm like, I have no idea what this means. Uh, the primary gene for coat color can be masked by the co-dominant gene for the orange color. Yeah. And that's on the X chromosome. That's and, X inactivation. Yeah. yeah, if I'd known what a tortoise shell cat was, I would have known well, it was female. Maybe if you hated cats less, you yeah. would know what a tortoise shell cat is. <laughs> yeah, you only get X inactivation. Torties are my favorite because they yeah. also have brain issues, right? Okay. Nope, that's actually a myth. Okay, tortoise well, shell weird. cats are not more weird than the uh, than the general population. All of my tortoise shell cats have been weird. You're weird. No. Yeah. <laughs> you are the common denominator there. I prefer torties. It's really cool. 
So, the primary coat gene for coat color can be masked by the co-dominant gene for the orange color, uh, which is on the X chromosome and has two alleles. So it has like a big O and a little O allele. The orange and the not orange produce uh, orange pheomelanin and black eumelanin pigments respectively. Um, so the coat color for like a dark color and the coat color for the O color can be further modified by a recessive dilute gene, uh, which makes them softer. So like orange becomes cream and black becomes bright gray. Uh, the cells of female cats are different than other mammals uh, in that they have two X chromosomes. So each cell has both of the sex chromosomes and they undergo the phenomenon of X inactivation. One or the other of the X chromosomes is turned off at random, uh, very early in development. And the inactivated X becomes a bar body. Uh, cells in which the chromosome carrying the orange allele is inactivated express the not orange allele. So whatever their darker coat color is, the chocolate or the black. And then cells in which the uh, other one is activated um, give the orange color. And so these will rise to the surface and... Uh, surface of the cat and um <laughs> depending on how early in development this happens you get either the ones that are really sort of densely orange and brown all together or the ones with the really big patches is a little bit later in development i thought that the really big patches was the x inactivation happened earlier in development and then all of the daughter cells uh have the same value for the x because if it happens if the choice is made later in development there are more there are individual more cells them. that have to make the choice yeah Possibly we're both explaining the same thing differently. <laughs> anyway, it's really cool. I'm sorry. Well, you can go look it up. How about know, that? Yeah. <laughs> we'll put it um, in the show notes. There you go. <laughs> so the, the pigment genes are expressed in melanocytes, and they migrate to the surface later in development. In the bicolored tortoiseshell cats, the melanocytes arrive early, and the two cell types become intermingled, um, and they, they mix themselves up. And in mm. the ones with the uh, the tricolor, so they also have the white, they arrive a little bit later. Hmm. Cool. That's really yeah. interesting. So tortoiseshells have really cool genetics. You'll also often see that they, uh, tortoiseshell cats will have that really distinct line straight down the middle of their yeah. face mm. because of this yeah. phenomenon, right. because they're, they're arriving. Um, and so you'll get the half, their face is orange and half is black. So Chimera cats. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> If this question had said calico cats, yeah. tortoise shell, <laughs> I, wasn't I would have had a real sure answer it was tortoise shell answer. either. So that's okay. <laughs> anyway, I gravitate towards tortoise. They're they're my favorite. They're mm-hmm. my babies. Aww. Next question: Manx cats are known for lacking what feature? Mercy. Tail. A tail. <laughs> they do not like mercy. They lack a tail. They have little nubbins. Some of them. Depending. Some of them. Yeah. Some of them have sort of just really short tails, and some of them have basically none at all. Uh, This is an example of uh, a trait that, if it's inherited from both parents, is actually lethal. Uh, So if you get one copy of the allele, you have no tail, you're a typical Manx cat, but if you get two copies of this allele, uh, your spine is so screwed up that you die in utero. Mm. Hmm. So is that a... I'm not really familiar with Manx. Are they a breed, or is it just a thing that happens, and it's, then it's we call breed. them all? Okay. Yeah, yeah. but they uh, it happened it's probably just... because of founder effect, um, mm. and it is... They're all from the Isle of Man. Yeah, most a lot of them are. Um, and so in other populations, when this gene popped up, it would have just been outbred to right. different cats. But on the Isle of Man, it became uh, right. very concentrated. Hmm. Okay. That's good to know. Right. What breed of cats have a mutation in the gene which encodes the keratin-71 protein? 
I put Sphinx. I put Sphinx, too. I put the bald ones. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will accept that answer. Like, it, yeah. it says hairless, I assume? Yes. <laughs> um, so, I, I learned a little bit about uh, the Sphinx and the Rex uh, cat genetics while researching this, and they're pretty cool. This mutation causes the keratinization in the hair follicle to fail. So, actually, the hair is formed in Sphinx cats. They actually do make hair mm. in the follicle, but it's just really easily damaged or dislodged. So, it doesn't get very far in development before it gets knocked off. Or babies. Yeah, but... A lot of people will actually think that Sphinx cats are hypoallergenic, that you're not going to be allergic to no. them. But yeah, that's actually a myth. Most people are actually allergic not to cat hair itself, but to a protein yeah. that's excreted in their saliva and from sebaceous glands and deposited on the fur. And Sphinx cats actually get coated in this body oil more easily because they don't have any fur. And they do a lot more grooming because of that. So people who get a Sphinx cat and say, well, I'm not allergic to it because it doesn't have... Usually those people are just experiencing one of those effects where if you expose yourself to the thing, you become less allergic to it. (laughs) My goodness, I wish that would happen for you. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, that would be helpful. But they are, in general, no less likely to cause an allergic reaction than other cats. So the Sphinx was developed in Canada. Yep. And it was a Devon Rex gave birth to this hairless mutant as a baby, who's a male cat, and so they bred it to its mother to create the Sphinx gene. That's how a lot of these cat breeds are uh, are established. I've found that uh, a, somebody who's breeding a cat finds an interesting kitten, and they're like, "Well, let's just breed it back to its parent to see what happens." And they right. get more of them, and, then, it and, and most yeah. of those breeds are therefore founded from one cat. Yeah, just that's and pretty weird. We've got a big book of cat breeds, and it's full of all these little interesting factoids. And not that I'm cheating on this quiz. <laughs> <laughs> The book isn't here. We're good. I just, I just happen to like kitties. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, so point coloration in cats is where the ears, paws, tail, and the face are a darker color than the rest of the body. So think like Siamese cats or some sorts of um, ragdoll cats will have this coloration sometimes. This is caused by a gene that is sensitive to what factor? I put melanin, but That's, I'm probably wrong. I put that too. That's all I could think of. I put stylishness. <laughs> <laughs> That's a tuxedo cat. So it's actually sensitive to temperature. Oh. (laughs) Really? So it's a form of partial albinism. Uh, It results from a mutation that affects tyrosinase, an enzyme involved with melanin production. So the mutated enzyme is thermolabile. Thermolabile? I have no idea how to pronounce it. Thermolabile? Yeah, let's not say labial. (laughs) (laughs) It fails to work at normal body temperatures and becomes active in cooler areas of the skin. So the, oh, the points of the tail, right, the paws, that makes sense. Any, points, all yeah. of the extremities are, are able to activate this, whereas the rest of the body isn't. Hmm. I think I have that. When I'm very <laughs> cold, all my limbs turn blue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Pointed kittens are actually born white, since the womb is uniformly warm. Right. And then as they age, they'll grow into these, these dark points in their fur. Oh, oh kitties. Wow. Yeah. My first cat was a seal point purebred Siamese, and she was oh, wow. beautiful. Just beautiful. I had a snowshoe Siamese growing up, and she, oh. They're so gorgeous. I really want a, a pointed ragdoll. They're so fluffy and so cute. <laughs> you really, you want more cat fluff? Yes. With your allergies? More cat fluff. Ragdolls are, are actually one of the ones that have less of that protein that makes you allergic. So even though they're super fluffy, 
They're less allergenic. But just think of like the the fur the. I, we deal with three cats worth of fur already. Who cares? <laughs> What's one more? <laughs> the gray tumbleweeds, even after we've Tumble furs. That was the word I was looking for. The tumble furs. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We're getting to the end of the quiz. The agouti gene is present in many mammals, including cats, horses, rabbits, and mice. The dominant form of the agouti gene produces this, the most common coat pattern in cats. Argyle. Argyle. No. Damn it. I put tabby. I put stripes. Ooh, it is tabby. Ah. The stripes is sort of on the edge of... Because I know that gene has to do with it, because I yeah. learned that through yeah. the Maltese tiger. <laughs> nice. Uh, like, I know this one, sort of. <laughs> uh, the agouti gene actually causes hairs to be more than one color, um, so often this will present as stripes uh, on the hair itself. Yes, actually, I've noticed that. <laughs> this is really common in rabbits, especially. Um, so if you like blow on a rabbit's fur, you can see that there's actually concentric circles because the hairs all have these particular bands, and it's supposed to aid them in camouflage and, and right. hiding out. I have that too, but it's because I don't always dye at the same rate. <laughs> so all my hairs are multiple colors because they're the different dye levels. I'm just a kitty. <laughs> I also found it really interesting that uh, apparently all cats have the genes for tabby coat colors. Yeah. Um, but the reason that all cats aren't tabby uh, is because some of the other coat patterns are more dominant. So things like pure black or, or the pure white that I was talking about with the spots and stuff, those are uh, more dominant. But you can't have, for example, uh, a cream cat or a... Uh, uh, a light orange cat without who's not a tabby because of the way that the genes interact. Mm. It's always going to be the tabby gene dominant if it's a, a lighter color like that. Cool. So that's why tabby is the most common because every cat has that gene. Hmm. Right. Default. Default <laughs> is a good setting. <laughs> uh, last question. Whether or not a cat reacts to catnip is an autosomal dominant trait. True or false? This means in order for the offspring to react to catnip, the mother must have the gene that causes her to react to catnip. I said true. I said false. I said false. Mm. It is false. I fail. Yes. <laughs> so a dominant trait is one that is likely to be expressed over a more recessive trait if the genotype is heterozygous, which means that they have two different alleles. Mm -hmm. uh, autosomal means that the gene is present on one of the chromosomes that is not part of the sex chromosome, so it can be inherited from either parent. Catnip sensitivity is therefore a gene that can be passed on from the dam or the sire, and the cat will be sensitive to catnip whether one or two copies of the gene are present. And about 77% of cats are sensitive to catnip. I got confused at the... Yeah. It's been a long time since high school. <laughs> <laughs> Alright. Uh, so, I didn't actually keep track as I went, but I have all your papers so I can grade you. <laughs> <laughs> Lauren got seven... Laura got five, and Jem got one, two. I don't see where you wrote anything. Did you write Did you write your score? No. Oh, okay. I thought you were grading it for me. So you got sweet. You got... I, I was going to give you digits. So one, two... You were getting one other digits. Of course you were going to give me digits. You also promised to give me the, the hairless one. Yes. Hairless, I assume. <laughs> <laughs> so you got four. All right. Jem four, Laura five, and Lauren... Seven. Yay! Yay. Nice! Oh, <laughs> Kitties. Right. Hopefully you found some of my kitty factoids interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that was fun. Now we're going to go to Jem's quiz. Now for my quiz. I've got a degree in homeopathic medicine. You've got a degree in baloney. <laughs> my quiz is called You've Got a Degree in Baloney. 
this game is played over ten rounds. For each round, I will list three items taken from the course curriculum at a scientifically dubious post-secondary institution, providing the course name and quoting from the description. Just like in science or fiction, and like in uh, several of Laura's questions, two will be real, and one will be fictilious. You will need to tell me which one is the fake. This should be right up your alley, Laura, because several of these schools, uh, most of them actually, focus on nutrition. And satisfying our CRTC mandated CanCon requirement, all but one of these schools are located in Canada. Ooh. <laughs> uh, when I was uh, building this quiz, actually, I ran into a few roadblocks. Program overviews and curricula are readily available for, uh, say, the University of Manitoba's Faculty of Health Sciences. But many of these colleges and academies that focus on alternative medicine don't actually post their curricula publicly. If I were to hazard a guess, uh, it might be that they're concerned that those skeptical of their legitimacy might make fun of them in some sort of quiz game. But who knows? Uh, <laughs> we would never do that. Case in point, our first target, the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, did not have their uh, program overviews posted online. Uh, if you want to know more about this institute, visiting teachers at the institute include purveyors of nonsense such as Drs. Mehmet Oz, Deepak Chopra, Andrew Weil, who, while being a fellow beard enthusiast, uh, does not have anything reasonable to say about nutrition, uh, Mark Hyman, who is an advisor to the Clintons and uh, proponent of so-called functional medicine, uh, as well as Ariana Huffington, founder of the Den of Quackery, the Huffington Post. And uh, one of their visiting teachers also is David the Avocado Wolf. David <laughs> Avocado Wolf! See, Laura whenever, Stalker. Yeah, whenever oh. I see his pictures on Facebook now, I think Laura would choose him over Dr. Oz. Yeah. <laughs> he, he looks like a yoga instructor. Yeah. He looks like he hasn't bathed since the 80s. <laughs> So, uh, he has. It was just in coconut oil. <laughs> <laughs> the Institute for Integrated Nutrition doesn't have a link to their curriculum guide on their website, perhaps because they don't want it easily searchable, so I had to sign up to their email list <laughs> in order to oh. get it. The link to their curriculum guide showed up along with this note. Hi, Jim. I'm Joshua Rosenthal, founder, director, and primary teacher of the Institute for Integrated Nutrition. <laughs> I'm happy you found us. I I'm going to skip a little here. Uh, if you're anything like me, you receive a lot of email. Uh, very true, skipping a little. Uh, over the next few days, I'll be in touch to help you get acquainted with our school and our amazing team. I promise that if you're as passionate as I am about making the world a healthier and happier place, you're going to love what we have to offer. There appears to be no way to unsubscribe from this mailing list. <laughs> So, Maybe just send him a link to this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In case anyone is interested in perusing their courses without having to uh, put up with a constant stream of emails, I will link to their curriculum guide in the show notes. This seems perfectly <gasps> reasonable to me, uh, as the link is technically public and requires no login. They just uh, don't link to it anywhere, and it's just like an Amazon AWS page. The 40-page booklet appears to contain more pages of testimonials than it does course descriptions, uh, but I think you'll be pleased with what I was able to find. So, <laughs> let's get this game started. Round one, and remember, two of these are real, and you have to choose the one that is fiction. I've randomly selected who will go first, and it will be Ashlyn. Woo! So, Ashlyn, 
Before looking at the course curriculum itself, let's talk some basics. The Institute for Integrative Nutrition classifies the following as primary foods. A. Fresh local produce. B. Spirituality. <laughs> C. Your career. Which one is the fake? Oh, primary foods. And there's only one fake, so I, I'm guessing your career? Oh, God, no, that's hard, no. Ah, so maybe primary foods are like your career, your spirit, your home life. But maybe it's like produce and also your spirituality. Ah, hmm. I'm going to go with local produce because why not? Okay. So Ashlyn goes with A, local produce. Lauren. <laughs> I hear what you're saying, Ashley. <laughs> but I'm going to go with career. Okay, and Laura? I'm looking for the fiction. You're looking for the fiction. And only one is a fiction. <laughs> only one That's is a, a fiction. Problem. But only one of these things are actually food. <laughs> That's true. You've noticed the problem. <laughs> Rock your ripper and start. Does not compute, okay? Um... Oh, oh my God, Laura, you're a dietitian. This should be easy for you. <laughs> I'm gonna say career too. And Ashlyn takes us. Yes. <laughs> Quoting from the curriculum guide, and I'd like to remind you that this is an institute for nutrition, apparently. Yes. At Integrative Nutrition, we have a philosophy about food. Everything we consider a source of nutrition is really just a secondary source of nourishment. The foods you eat are secondary to the other aspects of life that feed you. This is what we call primary food. Relationships. You can eat all the broccoli in the world, but the quality of your relationships with family, friends, and co-workers explains a lot about the quality of your life. Cultivate relationships that support your wants and needs. Career. Most people spend 8 to 10 hours a day, 5 days a week at work. Are you passionate about your job? Do you love who you work with? Finding work you enjoy is essential to living a healthy, balanced life. I'll just break in to say that that's actually kind of false. Uh, <laughs> choosing to love what you do instead of uh, doing what you love is actually uh, uh, far, healthier. Uh, far healthier. But I digress. Physical activity. Our bodies thrive on movement and quickly degenerate without it. Exercise can be simple, such as getting off the subway or bus one stop early. Making physical activity a daily habit greatly increases your health and happiness. Spirituality. We all search for meaning in our lives, and feeling at one with the world can satisfy that longing. Some people follow their traditional religion of birth, while others explore new traditions. Spiritual nutrition can feed us on a very deep level and diminish cravings for the superficial rewards of life. So let's just redefine words so that we can teach whatever we want, whenever we want. They're like, holy shit, we don't know anything about food, but we're a nutrition institute. How can we fix this? I know! That's... Oh, okay, Jim. Keep going. Okay. Just, just let's motor through this. This is going to be painful. Round two. The following courses are taught at the Institute for Integrative Nutrition. A. Bio-individuality. Students explore the pros and cons of over 100 dietary theories and learn how to create personalized approaches to food and lifestyle. B. The energetics of food. 
Food has distinct qualities and energetic properties that will affect your body depending on where, when, and how it's grown and prepared. C. From farm to table. Learn about the complex journey your food takes and contrast modern farming techniques to those of our forebears. Which one of these is the fake, starting with Lauren? C sounds like it would be too reasonable for them. <laughs> okay. But I was thinking A as well. Ooh. Yeah, let's go with A. A, bio-individuality is the fake. Okay, yeah. Laura. I, I feel like C has to be it because I feel like they don't actually know anything about how food is produced um, ever. I think they have a very fake sense of, a fake and rosy sense of of how the good old days were and that shows up in their individual assessments and I really think that the individuality part of it because that's part of what's wrong with conventional medicine in that is that oh you don't treat the individual you treat the you just lump everybody together but we're all individuals and so despite the fact that they give everybody the same coconut oil avocado (laughs) non-gmo advice I'm gonna go with C I have to go with C okay Ashlyn so I have a confession to make. I was busy posting Laura and Lauren's reactions to your first question to Facebook, so I missed the first two, so you're going to have to repeat it for me. Okay. <laughs> a is bio-individuality. Students explore the pros and cons of over 100 dietary theories. B is the energetics of food. Food has distinct qualities and energetic properties that affect your body. And C is from farm to table. Learn about the complex journey your food takes and contrast different farming techniques. Modern. I really want to change to C again now. Yeah. It sounds too reasonable. too reasonable. That sounds like a course that I would be interested in taking. (laughs) So I'm going to go with C. I guess I'm locked into A. You're locked into A. Uh, And For the record, though. Yeah. uh, It is C. Yes! Yes! Because we know they don't know anything about food. (laughs) Yeah. Ashlyn is leading with two points. Laura and Lauren each have one. I think one of you needs to change your name. <laughs> yeah, just for the podcast. You can start calling me Elsties. <laughs> That's true. Ashlyn, are you going to keep a uh, score so I sure. don't have to? Yep. That, w- that would make it a little bit easier for me. So it's 2 one, one. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, let's talk about dietary theories. Quoting from the curriculum guide again. Discover more than 100 dietary theories. Are you confused about all the conflicting nutrition advice out there? We are the only school in the world integrating more than 100 dietary theories. We are all too unique to eat the exact same food. So discover the pros and cons of different options to find what works best for you. (laughs) So, are you confused? Let's talk about 100 different (laughs) dietary theories. So, round three. At the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, you can learn about the following dietary theories. A. Macrobiotics, a philosophy based on balancing yin and yang through eating natural whole foods. B. The Pantheon Diet, a Mediterranean diet that divides foods into groups according to the 12 gods of classical antiquity. (laughs) And C. Nutrisystem, a weight loss company that sends you prepackaged breakfast, lunch, dinner, and dessert, simplifying weight loss. I know all three of these exist. I've seen all of these. Laura. So the one that you... I'm looking for the one that you cannot learn about there. Yes. Nutrisystem. <laughs> okay, Laura goes with C, Nutrisystem. <laughs> Ashlyn? 
Like, Nutrisystem is definitely a thing that exists, <laughs> but can you learn about it at this institute? Also, the first one used to macro... Macrobiotics. Biotics. Macronutrients are a thing, but they don't have to do with yin and yang? <laughs> uh. Well, that's what you think, Ashley. Everything <laughs> has to do with yin and yang, Ashley. Come on. When was the last time you listened to Gwyneth Paltrow? Come on. <laughs> Oh, I wonder if they would just, like, straight up teach Nutrisystem as a thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm going to go with it. I'm going to know Nutrisystem. Okay. I don't think they've branded it yet. Nutrisystem. And I swept you. Oh. <laughs> they teach Nutrisystem. <laughs> You're so pleased with yourself. And, and that did is they not teach, then? The Pantheon diet, Damn which it, I made that was up. the other one. I was like, that one sounds fake. I'm but like, it sounds so fake. That how how can I make a fake Mediterranean diet? Because there is a Mediterranean diet. Well, base it around the Greek gods. No, I, I figured it was fake when I heard the Greek gods part of it, but I just I really didn't trust them to teach a real <laughs> diet. I I, I trusted that they would teach some obscure bullshit and not something that actually exists. Like that seems like something that either like Nutrisystem paid them to teach it or. I don't know. I also, no idea, I want to know hilarious. if there's like a hundred different systems that you can learn for the hundred different types of people. Do they think there's only a hundred different types of people? Like, you either fall into one of these categories? I don't know. I'm thinking too much about this. They didn't, so you shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. Round four. At the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, you can also learn about the following dietary theories. A. Blood type. An individualized approach to eating which depends on blood type and combines anthropology, medical history, and genetics. Science-y. B. Ayurveda. This ancient healing system from India emphasizes eating in accordance with your individual body type and the seasons. Or C. Breaking fast. A two-meal approach that divides the day into two fasting periods, allowing bodies to optimally balance active and rest states. Starting with Ashlyn. Oh no, again, these are all things I've heard of. Oh, which one is the most bullshit? Because they'll definitely teach that one. <laughs> I think the blood type thing is more like a Japanese thing. So maybe I'll, I'll go with that one as one they don't teach. Okay. Lauren. I'm also going to go with A. Although I want to state for the record that you're making my brain melt. <laughs> <laughs> Lauren also goes, so Lauren and Ashlyn uh, go with A, blood type. So at this point, if when they're just choosing things to teach, they're just pulling things out of a hat and saying, yes, we're teaching this, no, we're not teaching that, right? I have no idea like, what the methodology is. Oh, because, yeah, like Ashlyn, I just, I feel like they would teach all of those things. Yeah. All of them are ridiculous. Although I haven't heard it called breaking fast. Right now it's mostly called intermittent fasting. Hmm. That's the big buzzword, but maybe they call it something else. Maybe okay. they were paid by breaking bad. To... <laughs> the breaking bad diet. <laughs> All meth. <laughs> I think we're spending too much time together. <laughs> oh my god. Our timing was really good though. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay, before I disclose oh, which one damn. is real, 
or which which two are really taught there and which one is the fake, they don't actually list all 100 in the course Sneaky. guide. They only list uh, a few dozen. And so it is possible that they do teach C, uh, which I attempted to make up. But, as we're all aware, it is impossible to make up a diet <laughs> scheme that isn't real. And I actually found this as I was putting this together. There are lots of questions where I made something up and then I'm like, oh no, they do teach a course in that. <laughs> what does that tell you? So C is the one that I made up. Laura is correct. Yay! Laura gets the point. However, apparently this is something that actually exists. It was not listed in their course description. Noted. I did make up the name, though, Breaking Fast. Round five. Good job. Why don't we turn to an institute of higher learning a little closer to home? The following courses are taught at the Canadian School of Natural Nutrition as part of their Registered Holistic Nutritionist program. That is a bunch of words that mean nothing. Laura, you're one of those, right? Ha! <laughs> oh, 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 oh. We wish we could show you that look she just gave you. <laughs> okay, A. The Benefits of Biodynamics. This workshop provides an overview of the environmental, nutritional, and spiritual benefits of biodynamic farming. Students will get hands-on experience with home garden biodynamic preparations. B. Aromatherapy and Bach flower remedies. <laughs> Students will become familiar with how to treat numerous health conditions, as well as fun and inexpensive ways to create personal body and hair care products. When you say Bach, do you mean like Johann Sebastian? How is that spelled? B-A-C-H. C. Nutrition and Mental Health. Alzheimer's Disease. This course is, quote, designed to deepen the student's knowledge and understanding of Alzheimer's disease. It explores the symptoms, phases, and possible causes and treatments, both conventional and nutritional. <laughs> so, starting with Laura, which one is the fake? Which one is not taught at the Canadian School of Natural Nutrition? Benefits of biodynamics, aromatherapy and Bach flower remedies, or nutrition and mental health, Alzheimer's disease? Um, I think the aromatherapy one is actually taught there for some reason because mm, hair care products and stuff absorb nutrition through your skin, yada yada, whatever. The contempt is palpable. <sighs> These people. Just. I'm on a Facebook page with other dietitians and we just, like, these people are the reason why we yell at night. <laughs> uh, okay. Again. I don't think they actually learn about how food is grown. And I'm not, now to be fair, I don't really know what biodynamic farming is supposed to mean. I'm assuming that means that when you have like mixed use farming and you're using like natural uh, or like... No, that was the thing I did my segment about with the, the pyramids and the, and the oh, putting skulls in the ground and We shit. watched a thing oh, with... Biodynamic <laughs> winemaking in oh. Australia today. Yes, yeah. and I saw that pyramid when I was in Kelowna with the like the yeah. little winery. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, I forgot that's what that was. Because I'm like, I've heard this term, but I forget what it means. I don't know. Oh, oh no. Oh. Okay, tell me the options again. Biodynamic farming, aromatherapy. What's the third one? Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's. Uh, nutrition and mental health. Alzheimer's. Oh. Okay, maybe I'll go with C. Because that one sounds too sciencey for them. Okay. Ashlyn. The the one with the learn how to treat several issues and also make hair care products. It's just like, you should never be able to do that in one course. <laughs> it's flow wax. And it's just 
dessert <laughs> topping. Aromatherapy yeah. and flower. That's a problem. Um, and yeah, the biodynamics one totally. That's right up their alley. So, but I mean, also, yeah, I guess I'm also going with C. Okay. Oh. And Laura. Doesn't it make you sad to have to answer these questions? Yes. Like I said, my brain is leaking out of my ears, and <laughs> I can give oh. you a cotton swab if you want. I'm okay. <laughs> I didn't need those, so I'm gonna go with C as well because Alzheimer's is a real thing. Well, I swept you guys again. Oh. It is actually the benefits of biodynamics oh. that they do not teach. And and Laura said they don't but, actually teach. But that's real... the thing. Yeah, because like, oh, it's the biodynamics part that got me. Once I realized what it was, because yeah. I'm like, I I'm don't sorry. think they know anything about food. <laughs> Uh, Damn so, it! So, uh, <laughs> you know, so uh, they okay. do teach aromatherapy and bulk flower <laughs> remedies, and they do in fact say, <laughs> learn to treat numerous health conditions and find expensive ways to create personal body and hair care products. In the same right course. There. <laughs> yeah, wow. Where is the CSNN located? Because you said closer to home, but you didn't actually specify. Uh, in Toronto. <laughs> I, I believe it's one of the Toronto ones. Okay. There's there are a few There's in BC few as well. Yeah, BC um, and, and Toronto area are the big. They, oh, Sorry, looks like it's that? Ottawa, or they might have several camp campuses. Mm, that makes sense, and probably like online. Oh boy, <laughs> so many of them. Thirteen locations across Canada: oh, Calgary, oh. Edmonton, Halifax, Kelowna, London, Mississauga, Moncton, Nanaimo, Ottawa, Richmond Hill, Toronto, Toronto East, and Vancouver. At least there's none in the prairies. I was going to say, yay, no Winnipeg. <laughs> Established 1994, which you can tell from their website. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay, on to the question. The following courses are taught at the Canadian School of Natural Nutrition as part of their registered holistic nutritionist program. A. Mind, Body, Spirit. The Connection. The student will discover that physical diseases have related emotional, psychological, and or spiritual links. The student will begin to understand these connections in the context of the anatomy of the human energy system, the anatomy of an individual's spirit. Oh, that is God. definitely in there. Oh, yeah. Next. B. Candida overgrowth. Oh, Many yes. people... Yes, that is in there. Definitely. <laughs> Many people are affected by the overgrowth of candida which can release toxic byproducts into your body and cause many health problems from depression to leaky gut. Uh, C. <laughs> allergies. This course leads the student to understand what allergy is and how it works in the body, and what steps can be taken to remove the condition permanently in a Ooh. natural way. Ashley, oh. you should take this course. Yeah, yeah, I would like to take that course. If it worked. So, starting with Lauren, uh, which one is the fake? The Mind, Body, Spirit, The Connection course? Candida overgrowth course or allergies course? Oh, God, they all sound so horrible. I don't know. I'll have to go with the allergies course because Laura was so adamant about the other two. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Laura. Oh, but see, the thing is, once the allergies one came around, I was yeah. like, oh, crap. <laughs> <laughs> I am okay with getting zero on this uh, quiz. You know, the candida one sounds maybe more, as much as I think they would teach it, Maybe it's something that would be more from a naturopathic school because that's super naturopath territory there. Not that the other ones aren't, but that's like their thing, right? Um, but they're holistic. Natural nutrition, <laughs> registered holistic nutritionist program. I'm going to go with Canada. 
Okay, Laura goes with B, Candid Overgrowth. Ashlyn. I'm going to go with the allergy one. Ashlyn goes with C, allergies. And, again, Laura is correct. <laughs> yep. Uh, <laughs> this uh, was one case where I actually I had a different thing, <laughs> a different ridiculous thing, and it uh, turns out they taught that. So, <laughs> Can you tell us I'm what like, it was? As far as not I, yet? Uh, no, not yet. Okay. Because I, uh, I think I used it later. <laughs> So, uh, let's move on to round seven. This will be the last round where we talk about the CSNN. The CSNN also offers the following workshops. A. Immunology. This workshop takes a more focused and scientific look at the potential for nutrition to enhance and replenish a weakened immune system. Topics of discussion include alkanizing and detoxification protocols, the principles of psychoneuroimmunology, and dietary protocols used to control inflammation, build the immune system, and prevent disease. The workshop concludes with an explanation of a specialized cancer treatment program. Wow. Laura just lost her shit and started beating Jem, for those of you who could not see that at Jem, home. Jem knows why. <laughs> Uh, I have a close family member who uh, apparently has an advanced degree in psychoneuroimmunology. <laughs> B. Now Lauren knows why too. <laughs> B. Introduction to homeopathy. Speaking of said close family member. <laughs> this workshop will provide basic knowledge of the history and complementary practice of homeopathy. Most importantly, it will illustrate what homeopathy can treat and when it is prudent to refer to a homeopath. Since never. Every everything. Yeah. The, <laughs> the correct answers are nothing and never. never. I imagine this is a pretty short course. <laughs> and C. The Art of the Cleanse. This workshop provides an overview of the philosophy and practice of a variety of medical, nutritional, and spiritual cleanses. Oh my god. Uh, let's start with Ashlyn. I don't know. Why don't they just offer all of them? Oh, there's got to be something about homeopathy at this campus. <laughs> These 13 campuses. Yeah. Goodness gracious. So the... The one with all of the crap is the first one. Then there's the homeopathy, and then there's the... The art of the cleanse. Art of the cleanse. Which, oh, it's just so Pooping for the ridiculous. good. <laughs> there are spiritual cleanses, oh, too. Oh, my goodness. I feel like you probably wouldn't have made up the first one because that would be too obvious. But that's why I'm playing the metagame here. I don't know. <laughs> art of the cleanse is the fake. Okay. Ashlyn chooses C, the art of the cleanse. Lauren... I'm not playing anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no. Got it. Done. Pick one. Homeopathy. <laughs> and Laura. I'll say the first one. We're going to play the can sweetie bus this time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Somebody's got to be right. And uh, Ashlyn takes it. Yay! The of the cleanse is the fake. They do, in fact, teach uh, the principles of psychoneuroimmunology. Yeah. This is a field of study that makes some controversial medical claims. There are medical professionals who practice psychoneuroimmunology. Uh, the cancer cure in question for, uh, for the immunology course is actually the Gerson therapy or Gerson therapy. Uh, it has been widely discredited by science-based medicine. Oh, that therapy makes me angry. Yes. Oh. Super angry. Yep. Blame the victim. The therapy. 
Oh, just uh, be happy and it'll go away. Is that the one? It is a combination of nutrition and psychological counseling, uh, from what I understand. Uh, I did not do a deep dive on it, okay. so that, that may be it wasn't an unfair like representation. Vitamin mega dosing or something uh, like that. N- that. That was not the impression that I got. Okay. But uh, no, It's just, if you ever want to make yourself angry, just look it up. If you, if you need righteous anger, want to punch something... <laughs> Yeah, Yeah. there are, uh, yeah, it is not science-based, but there are sufficient anecdotes, as we know from talking with close family members, to convince people that it works. Is said close family member on staff at this? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Other workshops they offer include Ayurvedic medicine, uh, breast cancer prevention, and an advanced course in detoxification. Mm. I wonder if the breast cancer one is like, just don't put your cell phone in your bra. Yeah. (laughs) Don't Uh, look for lumps. You won't find any lumps. (laughs) The art art of the cleanse is not among them. Oh, Uh, that title is amazing. uh, Thank you. Uh, (laughs) I would like to remind our listeners, uh, if this whole segment hasn't been a reminder enough, uh, that in most of North America and Europe, anyone at all can call themselves a nutritionist. There is no requirement that they have any particular education. Much of the education that is available makes no distinction between science-based and pseudoscientific practices, and there is no consistent standard of care. If you're looking for nutritional counsel, seek a dietitian. <laughs> for our final few rounds, let's take a look at some other Canadian schools of quackery that are not so hyper-focused on nutrition, although, of course, it, it will come up. Round eight. The Toronto School of Traditional Chinese Medicine offers the following courses. A. Shang Han Lun. This course covers the classic theories of infectious diseases caused by exogenous wind and cold factors. B. Genetic Memory. This course teaches students to recognize their innate knowledge and to guide others in unlocking the gifts and talents of their ancestors. C. Business Promotion. This course provides students with the knowledge and practical skills in business promotion, specifically client recruitment and retention. Laura. B. Genetic memory. B. Is the fake? Laura. B. Okay. Yeah. Ashla. B. Wow, that was, that was uh, uh, pretty quick. I don't know. Like... I, I'm done with this quiz, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm certain that they teach a lot, they spend a lot of their time teaching how to promote your business because yeah. all of their graduates are essentially independent practitioners that they just have to market themselves. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So that's most of what they do. And the other one, cold factor, is a big part of traditional Chinese medicine. Yeah, that's why you see so many of the babies bundled up on a sweltering hot day with all the, yeah. Uh, you are all correct. The genetic memory one is fiction. Uh, I had to move that one around because I did find a place, actually, that uh, that taught that. So, uh... (laughs) Scientology at work? (laughs) Let's move on. So everybody gets a point there. Let's move on to the second last question. Round nine. The Canadian College of Homeopathic Medicine's postgraduate program outline for 2016-2017 includes the following courses. A. Cardiology. Heart, no. heart disease, including stroke, is a common clinical condition in primary care practice. There are a number of useful homeopathic medicines that can benefit patients in both the acute and the chronic state. B. Vaccination. This course discusses the appropriate place of vaccination in public health policy and provides an overview of the symptoms and homeopathic treatment for vaccine-related illnesses. Oh. C. 
Autism, Asperger's, and ADD. Autism spectrum disorder and attention deficit disorders are all on the rise. In this seminar, we will learn to use and search the Materia Medica while creating a solid homeopathic treatment plan. Starting with Laura. Cardiology, vaccination, or autism, Asperger's, and ADD. What's the name of this college again, sir? The Canadian College of Homeopathic Medicine, and this is their postgraduate program outline for this for the coming scholastic year. Well, the vaccination course would be another one of those never vaccinate five hundred dollars, please. Um, <laughs> sure, of course. Yeah, and the cardiology one is the worst part of it. God, seeking homeopathic treatment in acute cardiology issues. Oh. <laughs> Oh, this is so hard. Oh, God. Remember, these points aren't real. I know, but... Okay, I'm going to go with C. Autism, Asperger's, and ADD. Okay. Ashlyn. I'm going to go with the vaccines one, because I think they would have led with, like, calling it something about, like, the no-sodes or whatever. So I'm going to go with that one. Lauren. I'm also going with the vaccine one. Okay. And Ashlyn and Lauren get it. I will note, however, that no-sodes actually refer to the way the uh, homeopathic remedy is prepared. It refers to a homeopathic remedy that is prepared using uh, diseased tissue rather than using um, uh, some sort of unrelated thing that causes similar symptoms. Uh, They are often used uh, as a vaccine, but that's not the only way that they're used. This really, one, are we debating the science? I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that they're right. I'm just, I, this is all about learning. Learning about nonsense. Uh, You're making yeah, me angry, Newman. The, the vaccination course is the one that I made up. However, only because I previously made up the homeopathic cardiology course and then found it on the next page. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, boy. Yep. Homeopathic cardiology. Learning about nonsense, nonsense about learning. Okay. Sorry, Laura. Uh, Maybe you'll make up uh, for it in the last round. Round 10. The Pacific Rim College of Complementary and Integrative Medicine in Victoria, B.C. offers the following courses in their Community Herbalist Certificate Program. Hmm. A. Diabetes Management. Diabetes is a growing concern in North America and Europe. Students will learn the basics of diagnosis and management of diabetes as described in traditional texts. B. Backyard gardening. In this age of financial uncertainty, gardening skills are a sought-after commodity. This comprehensive and practical introduction will provide beginners with the requisite skills to begin their own organic growing projects at home. C. Natural emergency medicine. Students will learn to apply natural remedies, acupuncture, herbal remedies, homeopathics, and others to emergency situations. Starting with Ashlyn. They all sound extremely reasonable. <laughs> <laughs> like for this certificate. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> not, okay. not in general. I don't know. Are there ancient texts that describe how to deal with diabetes? They probably don't use the term diabetes. True. Like, so this is one of those ones where I'm tempted to go with the gardening one, because it seems like that certificate should have something about gardening, so maybe it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going with the one that sounds the most reasonable. Yeah, yeah. well, it worked for me in the first round. Now I'm going to go with the diabetes one. Okay, Ashton goes with A, diabetes management. Lauren. I'm going to go with the gardening. <laughs> gardening. Backyard gardening. And Laura. What's the last one again? Natural emergency medicine. I'm going to go with gardening. Gardening, and it was a diabetes management. <laughs> that act that honestly surprises me. Yeah, because there is a lot of 
stuff about herbs and diabetes management a lot. Yeah. So just eat all of the cinnamon and you'll be fine. Cinnamon and this. Yeah. Like (laughs) there's a lot. So that one, I would guess another school teaches something like that. It was was actually the ancient text thing that kind of was like, eh. See, but that one, that part of it didn't get me because um, they've been recognizing like it wasn't fully called diabetes, but the mellitus part of it means like honey urine, right? Yeah. Like diabetes yeah. mellitus. And they knew that people who were sick with this disease, their urine smelled sweet and like That's it would attract yeah. ants and flies and like all these yeah. things. So they've recognized that we've recognized it as disease for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so, it was called sweet urine. Yeah, yeah. So as I uh, as I said at the beginning, I did my best to do an exhaustive search of the material available to make sure that none of the fictions were actually taught there. And I had to rearrange several of the questions accordingly. Uh, But it is possible that these incomplete catalogs, you know, they didn't have the course listed despite it being there. Yeah. Ashlyn, do you have final scores for us? Yeah, so this is suspicious because I was taking score. Mm -hmm. But the final score is Lauren 3, Laura 4, and Ashlyn 6. Wow. Nice. Okay, well done, Ashlyn. I am well proud done. to have lost this. <laughs> I, I poured through the curricula of dozens of North American nonsense academies putting this quiz together. And honestly, the hardest thing was uh, paring things down because there is so much, so many nonsense colleges. Uh, well, okay, that's not actually true. The hardest thing was having to totally rearrange the quiz when I realized that some of these uh, fake answers actually... Uh, were taught and they have a goddamn homeopathic cardiology course. <laughs> uh, but it was a lot of fun. So I'm really interested in hearing from our listeners uh, if this is something that we should do again because I really, I really enjoyed this. With a different panel because I'm just going to. I was ready to rage You're quit. Table flip. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and she hasn't even done her quiz yet. Yeah. My quiz is awesome and I was ready to just walk out of here. <laughs> All right. So. Heading into the last round, and keep in mind, Lauren has participated in all three rounds so far because she hasn't done her round yet. But we are at Jem 10 points, Ashlyn 11 points, Laura 9 points, and Lauren 15 points. Whew! So it's still anyone's game. So here we go. In the interests of parody and of fair use, we're here to play Peril! Yay! Yay! Carol has played a lot like a similar sounding game show, so you have to answer in the form of a question. We have three topics. We have debunked forensics, we have world creation myths, and we have neighborhood astronomy. Neighborhood astronomy means within our own solar system. Okay. Now, uh, is it considered bad form if I pull an Arthur Chu and start bouncing around the board? It is up to you entirely. Okay. <laughs> And we'll start with Ashlyn. Ooh, uh, world creation myths for 600, please, Lauren. Wait, do we have to wait until you finish reading the question? Mm-hmm. Okay. Ao is the deity of light and the ordinary world in the mythology of this New Zealand people. <coughs> Laura. Maori. Correct. I think that was before you finished. <laughs> we have no way to lock out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shoot. Now I have to choose. Laura. Debunked forensics for 200. This effect has given rise to many misconceptions about the nature of forensic science and investigation procedures among jury members. Gem. CSI effect. Yes. 
What is the CSI effect? Oh, Wrong! Yeah. <laughs> Alright, we're not going to give that to anybody. <laughs> I guess the board is still Laura's. Please answer oh, in the God, form no. of a question. It's funny because I always, I always write my uh, <laughs> I always write my quizzes as though they're Jeopardy. I mean, peril. <laughs> uh, but I forget to answer in the form of a question. Okay. So it goes back to Laura to choose. It's them? Laura's. Yes. Okay. World creation myths for two hundred. World tree and wolf symbolism appear in the creation myths of both Turkic, Mongolian, and this mythology. Uh, Ashland. Norse. Correct. What totally is Norse? Oh! <laughs> Nobody's actually going to win this game. We're just screwing up all the questions. <laughs> we are not ready for our primetime debut. <laughs> so we have two bum qu- questions, and Laura with 600 points on the board. <laughs> Laura, it's still yours. Uh, neighborhood astronomy for 200. This probe, which landed on Mars in 2012, is programmed to sing happy birthday to itself every year on August 5th. Ashlyn. Curiosity? Answer in the form of... Oh, <laughs> what is the curiosity probe? Yes. <laughs> we'll give that one to you so somebody else yes. can get on the... Oh, yes, please. Thank God. Is curiosity. Oh, oh it's so yeah. sad. Technically, it's the rover that's... Yeah. No, yeah. That's true. But, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, I put that one in an adrenaline rush. <laughs> Ashley, you have the board. World creation myths for a thousand. Ooh, big money. Viracocha was the creator deity in this Andes region religion. <coughs> Laura. Uh, I'm going to say Inca. Correct. But... Oh, oh damn it, I didn't. What is Inca? What is Inca? <laughs> <laughs> this game suddenly got a lot more lax. Now I'm not the one forgetting. <laughs> Some people on the board. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, Laura. I honestly didn't know if that was a religion. I'm just like, that's the only Andes area culture I know. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't even remember which continent the Andes were on. <laughs> so you're repeating me. <laughs> okay. Well, let's do world creation myths for 800 then. This is the only category I've got a shot in. So, this giant sea creature, mentioned six times in the Hebrew Mikra, is thought to be a development of the earlier Canaanite sea monster, the Lotan. Ashlyn. What is a Kraken? Incorrect. (sighs) All right, we're going to go with zero there. (laughs) (laughs) What is the Leviathan? Ah! Ah, I was like, great fish? (laughs) (laughs) What's it called? The Hebrew Mikra includes the Torah, and it's the... Ancient writings. Yes, it, like yeah. this is including. This would include the Jonah and the whale reference. I was going to say like the fish that ate Jonah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I could not remember like an appropriate. Yeah, no, I wouldn't term. have come like... up with the term for it. But I'm just like it all makes sense. All right, we have. Well, let's do the 400 world creation myths just to clear up well, that, that. Clear out the category. That clears, that clears out the category. Yes, that clears right? out the category. This worldwide disaster motif exists as divine retribution in several mythologies, including Sumerian, Babylonian, and Irish. Gem. What is a flood? Correct. The deluge motif. What is a worldwide flood? What is a big flood? Where God's (laughs) like, sorry guys, I promise I won't flood again. And that's why we have rainbows. Gem. The board is yours. I will take neighborhood astronomy for 800. Neighborhood astronomy for 800. The first space shuttle, used only for atmospheric oh. tests, was named this. 
Doot, doot, doot. Nope. <laughs> what is the Enterprise? Oh! oh! I, I, uh, I was actually... I, I didn't... So when you say atmospheric tests, it never... F- like, are you talking like wind tunnel tests? Or are you talking... It like... never left our atmosphere. No? All right, Jim, That's... back to you. Okay, let's try neighborhood astronomy for slightly less hard. 600. <laughs> <laughs> this Jupiter trademark appears to be shrinking. The... What is the great spot? Uh, the big, big red spot. Sp- the big red spot, yeah. yeah. I don't know. Can't help! <laughs> well, yes, I'll give that to you. What is the big ass storm? <laughs> <laughs> I will give you the. I will give you that. <laughs> Am I not in the negative anymore? <laughs> I, we really need to, uh, to enforce. We need some way to enforce beeping early, Ashwin. <laughs> you know, like, for a lot of these questions, Ashwin and I, can I beep now? Can I beep yet? Yeah. <laughs> Current score, Laura at 1,600, Jem at 400, Ashwin at zero. <laughs> <laughs> Ashwin, um, the board is yours. Debunked forensics for 800. This popular technique is based on the assumption of trait theory, which came under severe criticism as early as the 1960s. Jem. <laughs> Um, what is criminal profiling? Correct. Mm. Gotta phrase this as a question. (laughs) (laughs) Alright, Jim, the board is yours. Uh, let's go with neighborhood astronomy for... 400 is is left. Mercury has this many moons. Ashlyn. Zero? What is zero? Correct! Yeah. (laughs) I was going to guess, and I'm like, I'm pretty sure yeah. there aren't any, but I was, I was thinking, thinking like, in my I'm mind, sure Mercury's moons. <laughs> yeah, sneaky. Ashlyn. Uh, neighborhood astronomy for a thousand. Mir, which was the name of the space station, is the oh. Russian word for blank. Oh, I knew this at one point. Sputnik is friend or companion or something. Are we buzzing out? Yeah. I'm going to say friend. <laughs> That is incorrect. (laughs) I don't care. Mir is the Russian word for peace. Peace. So we only have debunked forensics left on the board in the $400, $600, or $1,000 categories. My choice again, then? Yes. Yes. Uh, Debunked forensics for $400, please. Crazing, or multiple cracks on a window... Once thought to prove evidence of rapid heating caused by an arson accelerant is actually caused by this. Ashlyn. What is expansion and then shrinking back to room temperature? I'm going to accept that because it's <laughs> rapid cooling by water. So it's shrinking. Oh, water. yeah. Yeah, yeah, I Glass knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> I actually came across this when I was researching our forensic show and didn't find a way to include it. And then I was like, oh, shit, I don't remember <laughs> yeah, but it's but it was primarily a res- result of people trying to put out the fire, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and that would totally make it yes. shatter like that. Yeah. yeah, and there's some heartbreaking tales of people who've been put into jail for arson based on debunked arson forensics. Yeah, uh, and in cases where they've been put into jail for like killing their family members yeah. in arson. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, when in fact it was not arson. Six hundred and a thousand left. Uh, debunked forensics for six hundred, please. Name three of the five common forensic sciences that rely on subjective analysis instead of hard science. Can I There's so many three? of them, but yeah. Oh. Jim. What are hair follicle analysis, 
uh, handwriting analysis and um, polygraphy, lie detection by polygraph. I don't know if that is that would that count as forensics? No. Uh, I was just like, oh, he gets debunking. to keep guessing. <laughs> okay, no. Okay, well, right. there's only one question. One question left. left. Debunk forensics for a thousand. The inbound read technique of this, still in wide use in the United States and in detective programs, has been proven to lead to false confessions. Ashlyn, what is good cop, bad cop? <laughs> Yes. Really? <laughs> what is interrogation? What is interrogation? Uh, well, I don't think that really. I don't know. It is using the good cop, bad cop. So okay. the inbound read technique is good cop, bad cop? The inbound read technique is telling your suspect that you know they did it, and it feels good just to confess, and they need to confess, and using whatever techniques is possible to get them to confess. Mm. Yeah, I don't think my answer really no. covers that. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for trying to give it to me. But... Yeah, minus a thousand. All right, so going into final peril. The final peril is medical etymology. Uh, Please major. Jem has 1,200. Laura has 600. Ashlyn has minus 200, but I'll <laughs> let you play. Can I wager up to 200? <laughs> Ashlyn can wager up to 200. Okay, so I have 1,200. You have 1,200. Laura has 600. Ashlyn has minus 200. And she is allowed to wager... Up to 200. I should have guessed more wrong. <laughs> Medical etymology. Are we ready? Sure, okay, why I not? Got my wager down. We have a wager down? Go for it. Because of where in the body it is produced, this hormone's name comes from the Latin for island. All right, Ashlyn. We're back. We're back. I Ashlyn. $200. Okay. And I wrote insulin. Correct! Yay! Ashlyn is sitting at zero. Obvious. The islands refer to the islands of Lagerhands in the pancreas. Islets? It's the islet cells. Yay! Yay. Mine are crappy. <laughs> oh. Laura. I wagered 600 and I also said insulin. Yay! Jim. Should have wagered zero. I said <laughs> progesterone because I could not think of what the Latin for. <laughs> oh, oh no. And what did you wager? I wagered one dollar. Oh. So if I'd wagered zero, we would have tied. Yes. So Laura wins with twelve hundred dollars. Jim has eleven ninety nine, and Ashlyn has zero. Zero. You know what? Before you asked the question, I was just like, "Screw it! I am putting in all of my money because there's no way I'm getting this." Well, if you put in all of your money, and yeah. I don't win any money, then you would have won or yes. tied, and that is how it happened. That's Good why I job, everyone! Zero. Thank you all for playing Peril. Yay! Yay! That was fun. <laughs> All right, I have no idea how to score that in the end game analysis, so we're all winners! Yay! <laughs> that also lets us go home earlier. Yes. <laughs> all right, well, this has been a fun show. Definitely let us know what you thought. Uh, send in more questions so that I can give you dubious advice. Uh, and we will see you next month. Thanks for coming out to play games with me, everybody. Yeah, thank you. This was good. And uh, what's our topic for next month going to be, Jim? Oh, that is a good question. I am thinking of either doing uh, myths about genetically engineered foods, or inspired by that uh, that rally at the Forks uh, a couple weekends ago that had a turnout of like fifteen people or whatever, or 
I've been meaning to do um, racist pseudosciences or racism uh, masquerading as science. I don't know. One of those two. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> It'll be exciting. Tune in next month to find out what it is. Thanks, everybody. Good night. Good night. Thank you. Good night. You've been listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. If you have any questions or comments, or you'd like a suggested topic for the show, send us an email at l-u-e-e-podcast at winnipegskeptics.com. If you want to show your support, give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter or Facebook, or just share the show with a friend. Our music is produced by the very talented Ian James, and this episode was edited by Lauren Bailey. Today on the show, uh, I'm your host, Ashlyn Noble. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> this is not going well. God, I hate cats. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder where that's getting edited. Uh, I, I, took, I took the uh, cat to the vet the other day, and the vet's, the vet's like, oh, so you're a cat person? And I'm like, no, I'm not really a, I don't really like cats. She's like, oh, are you more of a dog person? <laughs> Just hate you know cats. I despise dogs. <laughs> Anyway, Jim doesn't answer questions the way that other humans would expect <laughs> questions to be answered. Yay! Yay! Ah! Damn it! And that's why we have rainbows. <laughs>